the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, worse contacts, red eyes, soaring rockets, and time travel to the present. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Hey, sitting in today is Christopher Rocchio, uh, a new editorial assistant here at Bain. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Tony. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, Christopher started out as an intern, but, uh, you know, he looked so much like Frodo Baggins, we, we had to hire him. Um, <laughs> although I think you, it's, it's like you, you have an interior fair farm here. That's how I feel so, sometimes. Yeah. Oh. I, I think I have an interior smog. He'll be. <laughs> Helping out with some podcasts, and confidentially, if you happen to call into the Bain offices, he's probably the one you'll you'll get on the phone. So this time on the podcast, we have a roundtable interview on Bain's latest uh, science fiction story anthology, Worst Contact, which is edited by the redoubtable Hank Davis. The anthology is a really good one. Hank is a master of the genre, past and present. You've seen his desk, right, Christopher? Uh, yes, and it's snowed under. There's a lot of books over there, um, and I know at different places, he's, he's got um, like the complete runs of things like Astounding and, and even more obscure things. I'm very jealous of the collection. So, yeah. So Hank, Hank knows his stuff, and um, these are basically stories of first contact where the meeting between aliens and humans goes uh, somewhat awry or sideways. Bane Consulting Editor, editor of our most excellent annual collection, the year's best military and adventure SF, and frequent podcast host David F. Sharrod conducts the interview, which includes Hank, who has uh, also a great story in the anthology, Sarah A. Hoyt, and yours truly, Tony Daniel. What story do you have in Worst Contact? I didn't realize. It's uh, called No Love in All of Dwingaloo, or Dwingaloo. Um, no love in all of Dwingaloo. And it's um, an, a weird alien first contact story where the aliens basically sort of come to Earth and try to set up a bank branch. But the, the their bank is past and futures of humans. We talk about a lot in the interview. All right, I look forward to it. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Here's the news. The February hardcover and original trade paperbacks are now at booksellers. Well, they will be next Tuesday, and the ebooks are all available now. Christopher, what have we got uh, for February? Well, our big February book is Lois McMaster Bujold's Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen. This is an all-new Vorkosigan saga novel from Lois Bujold, and now Miles does come into the book about in the middle, not to ruin it for you. But well, the book is centered, actually, on Miles' mother, Cordelia. His father has died, and this book is three years later, and is about a new relationship Cordelia is undertaking, and how biological technology, particularly in vitro fertilization and 
anti-aging technology complicates matters in interesting ways. You sat in on an interview we had uh, with Lois yesterday. Um, I thought it turned out, she's really good um, on on these interviews. I thought it turned out pretty well. Uh, I, I agree. I uh, had to keep my mouth shut, though, because I uh, haven't actually read the book yet. I I hope no one stones me for that. Well, how could you have just talked about the book if you haven't read it? <laughs> I don't understand. You gave me a script, Tony. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, so uh, that, that Lois Bujold interview we will have uh, next Friday. Also out in February is Volume 1 of The Best of Bova. This is the first part of the collected stories of science fiction legend, editor, uh, author Ben Bova. It's got some great stuff in it, grand stuff, and I expect we'll talk to Ben about it here on the podcast very soon. Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen and The Best of Bova, Volume 1, are now at booksellers everywhere. Hey everyone, it's David F. Shirod, and we are here on the Bane Free Radio Hour talking to the usual suspects when it comes to Bane short fiction. That's Tony Daniel, Sarah A. Hoyt, and Hank Davis, and today we're going to be discussing Extraterrestrial Life, First Contact, and Worst Contact. That's the name of a new anthology out now from Bane. It is edited by Mr. Hank Davis and features short stories by folks like Gene Wolfe, Clifford A. Simak, Frederick Brown, and all three of our esteemed guests. Uh, they're stories about humanity making first contact with alien life, and you can probably deduce from the title of the book that things don't always go so well, either for humanity or for the aliens, or sometimes for both. Um, it's a real fun anthology. I really enjoyed it, and as I was reading it, I realized um, I really like first contact stories. I never thought about that before. Um, you know, it's kind of a subgenre uh, of science fiction as opposed to things like Star Trek or Star Wars, um, where interacting with aliens has become uh, de rigueur, uh, mundane. And uh, I never really thought why it was I liked, liked first contact stories or what appealed to me about them. Uh, I've got some ideas about that now as I was preparing for this, but I thought I'd ask all of you, as writers and as readers, uh, what is it about first contact stories that's that's so appealing that keeps makes us keep returning to writing and reading them? I I, I think one one attractive thing about them is there's so many things that can go wrong. I mean, uh, isolated groups of humans meeting for the first time, things usually went wrong in the past, and. Of course, that was using contact between a uh, more more technologically advanced society, if not socially advanced, and a not very advanced society, so that uh, all all the heavy guns were on one side. And and of course, there is that constant curiosity about are there other intelligent beings out there? The statistically, it would seem there would have to be. But as uh, as a physicist whose name is dropped from my memory just now, famously said back in the 30s or 40s. Fermi. Oh, sorry? Is it the Fermi? Yeah, yeah the Fermi paradox. Fermi, who had a lot to do with uh, uh, the theoretical work that led to atomic weapons, which, of course, might result in the Earth not being having any intelligent or, or maybe other life on it. Uh, wondered why if he, he was fairly sure that if uh, 
that it would be possible to travel between the stars. And in that case, he wondered, there must be intelligent life out there capable of that, more advanced than us, so why haven't they showed up yet? Unless you're big on the flying saucers and think they are here and they're keeping a watch on us for whatever reason. But uh, part of that is the, the attraction of uh, contacting another intelligent life form, which might have solutions to our problems uh, that that uh, they may have entirely different art forms, assuming uh, assuming that their art forms would be any more popular than uh, I mean, they might be like Japanese animation is with us, uh, but on the other hand, it might be like Japanese music is with us. That is original Japanese music, not uh, the, the pop music influenced by the uh, by the Great White Satan or Bollywood and musicals. Yeah, like, what the but. Uh, <laughs> Well, what did, what was um, didn't Campbell have a opinion on aliens and humans? The uh, the John Campbell. That is. Well, John, John Campbell re- reportedly, uh, although he, I'm not sure he ever came out and said it, uh, but a lot of his writers found that he didn't like stories where the aliens won, where the humans uh, could outsmart the aliens. And I, I, I am aware of some counterexamples he published, but uh, I won't go into that. That's another. Topic, uh, but certainly Asimov was convinced of that. Uh, William Ted apparently quit writing for Campbell because uh, Campbell had him change his story, so that, so that he uh, he was the colossal man and went over to Galaxy, which was his true home in the fifties, and and, uh, and of course. Uh, I edited uh, earlier a a book called The Human Edge of all Gordon R. Dixon stories where the humans always outsmart the aliens. And, and nearly all of those were astounding or analog. So I, I, I am not completely convinced that Campbell had that attitude, uh, but it is certainly arguable that he did. Uh, Tony, do you want to add anything, or Sarah, do you want to add anything? Um, you know, what is it about first contact stories that you that interests you? I'm I'm attracted to both types, both types meaning the wildly optimistic one and the wildly pessimistic one of first contact. On an emotional level, I I grew up with Simak, who seemed to have this strange idea that. Uh, uh, the species as a whole feels lonely, and that therefore, you know, it will be that that our search for extraterrestrial life is because we feel lonely on Earth, which is an almost poetic idea. Of course, um, I'm sorry, it's so early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, we're we're trying to coordinate time zones, so Sarah had to get up extra early. So we thank her for joining us. Pink novel, the artifact, and um, the 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 guy who is way station. You know, it's one of my favorite novels. When I can't remember the title, I'm in bad shape. You talk about uh, Clifford Simak's way station. Is that what you're saying? Has has yeah. exactly that wishful poetic view of aliens. As you know, I, I don't know how to put this except as intelligences reaching to each other across the cosmos. 
And I love that vision, but I can't write it. In fact, I have a big problem with aliens because at the very back of my head, I'm absolutely convinced that if we meet them, we won't know. Not because they're uh, disguised as us, or, but, you know, even here on Earth, we're now starting to think maybe elephants have a language. But it's out of our hearing range. And we can't tell if they're sentient. And they've been with us all the time. And we come from common stock. So my idea of aliens is that they'd be so odd that unless they actually come after us or are occupying real estate we want, we won't be aware that they're there and they're sentient. So I don't write much in aliens, but when I write them, I tend to the pessimistic side. You know, if they're here, they want something from us. What I call, you know, the, the Heinlein side. Uh, you know, they're here looking for our real estate, basically. Because, and part of this is a reaction to the aliens are so, I grew up, I came of age in the 70s, which, you know, I don't like to admit. But <laughs> I, I, we were bombarded with all of these. The, the aliens are wise and wonderful, and they're here to tell us how to live a better life and respect the earth, which, by the way, my husband has insisted on watching the revived X-Files. And for various reasons, the house we're renting, my office at night gets incredibly cold. So I moved to the family room with the computer. So I'm sitting here working, and I can't stop from getting bits and pieces of whatever show is watching. And yesterday I was watching the two recorded episodes of X-Files, and there was the, you know, they came over here because they were afraid we'd destroy ourselves in a conflagration. And I'm thinking, oh, good, interstellar missionaries, that's just what we need. <laughs> yeah, that's the day the Earth stood still model, right? They're here to save us from ourselves. Yes. And, you know, I'm sorry, I don't believe in altruism to that point, and if they are altruistic to that, I'm thinking of Jesuits arriving in the Americas, you know, if they are altruistic, they're in service of a greater good, which is not necessarily our greater good. Please anyway, don't so help us. We'll be yes. okay. Yeah, uh, I want to ask Tony's view on this, but I want to take a quick detour because you brought it up, which is this notion that... Um, even if we come in contact with aliens, we may not know it. And there's a Hank included a story in here by Terry Bisson, which is pretty well known. Um, I'm sure all three, all four of us have read it, um, called they're, they're made out of meat. Um, and it takes the form of, a, I don't want to give it all away, but it takes the form of a dialogue of two aliens that are essentially in search of, um, finding intelligent species in the galaxy or in the universe. And, they are just astonished by us because no other intelligent race is made out of meat, you know? Um, so that plays into that. Um, and it's a great little, really short little great story with a, uh, neat little ending that I won't spoil. But, um, uh, so there's that. Um, Tony, did you have any thoughts on first contact stories and, and the appeal of them? Well, I think, um, that, one of the things I think is that um, 
I, well, I agree with the, uh, the, I think the answer to Fermi's paradox is that, um, is exactly that, is that, is they're here, um, that we're commuting, that, that we couldn't, we can't understand them. They're using other means than we are aware of. That, I mean, obviously they would be advanced in science and therefore, um, I don't, Magic. I don't, yeah, I mean, so, you know, yeah. if they don't want to be seen, they won't be seen, and apparently they don't want to be seen. There's no nothing to say logically. I don't think the paradox works um, because I think it's undermined by its its premises that science will not advance beyond where where it was when Fermi made it. Um, but I I mean, really, what first contact stories are for me is a way of talking about uh, because you know, basically, at base, I think science fiction is a is a metaphor. Um, it, it, the way that people um, relate to each other. Sarah's story has a wonderful line about how um, I can't remember exactly, but male female um, communication is is more difficult, perhaps even than human alien communication. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was something John Campbell once said. Uh, he challenged his writers to depict a being that thinks as well as a man, but not like a man. But he immediately said, no fair using a woman. <laughs> so, I mean, that's uh, my, my basic thought is that it is a way of um, evoking a sense of wonder at things that happen – happen to us every day when we encounter somebody else because we're not inside of anybody else's heads and um just reminding you know that first contact story is just kind of a, a way to step back and get perspective reminding us um of you know something that is completely normal all the time to us which is that we are communicating with a completely alien species whenever we talk to somebody else whose experience we can't share in any way so yeah, I mean, I remember I took a writing class, not with you, Tony, although I did take several with you. Um, and uh, I can't, there's a word in Russian that basically means strange making. And it's where you, you know, and I can't pronounce it or remember what it was, but, you know, the teacher was arguing, this is what you want to do with fiction is take things that happen to us all the time and present them in such a way that we, they, they seem strange and new and exciting. And science fiction certainly does that. And I think, what you're saying is first contact stories are a great way to do that. The other thing that they allow you to do as a writer is, is, be, is be very lazy in that your story is revelation of what these aliens are, and, you know, and some twist on that. So you don't have to really come up with much of a plot, and you don't have to have any as-you-know-bobs, you know, in there because you have to explain everything about the aliens. So you have perfect, uh, you have a perfect reason for expositional um, well, info dumps, yeah. So there's a tip for all you writers out there. Uh, if you if you're not feeling you know if you're feeling lazy, write a first contact story. Um, the thing the thing that occurs to me too, and this is uh, this is something I learned in one of Tony Daniels' writing classes way back when, is um, you know Tony, you've said stories are disruptions in the status quo or ripples in the status quo, and to me, a alien race making contact that's a that's a major disruption in the status quo it's a built-in it's sort of like it's a ready-made um point for your story to turn around you know as you're saying maybe if you're feeling lazy you know it, it allows you to be a little lazier um it's an automatic zoom out and and you can play on this which hank does in his story 
um, from like you know whether or not Mr. Knightley's going to marry Emma. You know, you zoom out and the whole solar system is now, you know, your setting. Right. Um, the other thing I like about them is, uh, in a way, they they seem plausible um, in a, in a fun way. You know, I mean, I don't know realistically how plausible any of them are, but they. I, I always, you know, I like really far future out there stuff, but I've, I've always kind of had a soft spot for. Um, you know, sort of the uh, George Clayton Johnson, who passed away on Christmas, talked about the Twilight Zone and how it was uh, realism with a touch of the strange. And I've always enjoyed that. And I like that's one reason I like first contact stories is it's really more or less the world we live in. But now we have this huge disruption. And, you know, I'm probably not going to make it to to be a red shirt on board the Starship Enterprise. But, you know, there's a part of me, a little kid that deep down thinks maybe I'll, you know, I'll see aliens land, though probably don't want to. Um, <laughs> so, Aaron and I can red shirt um, you in another way if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could. <laughs> I used to when I was Oh, 10 or 12 or so. I, I was a profoundly strange little kid, especially for Portugal and for a girl in Portugal. My parents had this terrace at first floor level. And I used to go and lie there in the middle of the night, which, you know, I wasn't supposed to be out of the house, and look up and just hope that I'd see something anomalous. You know, in summer nights, oh, yeah, just sure. looking at the stars and hope that I'd see, you know, it's like, yes, I'm going to make first contact. Then I grew up. Right, yeah. It it seems better in theory than in practice. Um, well, we've touched on this quite a bit, but um, I guess, you know, I was thinking there's really, there's two or three ways that sort of first contact stories seem to fall. Um, Bissons, they're made out of meat's kind of an outlier in that it's not really a first contact because we're so alien. Um, but um, it seems to go either they're here to save us from ourselves. Uh, it goes really well, like in, you know, some of Arthur C. Clarke's stuff or Star Trek, um, or it, it goes not so well, which is what all these stories are about. Um, and that goes all the way back to war of the worlds and um, you know, any, you know, alien invasion movie or book, um, and you know, it's sort of exemplified in the kind of in the people who think the aliens are already here, not like Tony, but that they've, uh, you know, mutilated cattle. You know, the contactees from the 50s and 60s uh, who, who, you know, they were the space brothers. Right. And they were, you know, here to and then uh, that kind of shifted into abductees and um, people getting picked up and experiments done on them. Um, and Sarah, we again, we've kind of touched on this already, but I loved your story kind of managed to address is called uh, her sister's keeper and it managed to address pretty much all of these um you've got a xeno linguist and her sister goes missing and she's got reason to believe she's inside this alien ship that's uh kind of smooshed denver when it landed it it takes the form of not really a debate but between um the main character uh lillian and her boss uh i guess boss or colleague xavier and they're they're discussing um you know, maybe they're here to, be, you know, to make us part of the United Federation of Planets. And, and her sister, um, Cressy, thinks this, that they're here to uh, usher in world peace. And uh, 
uh, I don't know. I, that was fun to me reading. You kind of managed to get every alien uh, first contact trope into one story. I just, if you could just talk about that, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, I promise, and this is not it. It was a vague wave about it. Uh, but I promised um, Ben Schmidt years ago that I would write him a story with linguistics as the science. And then I started writing novels, and it never happened. So I sort of wanted to have a linguist there because, oh, also I went to the Tennessee Valley Interstellar uh, conference a year and a half ago, and I was in the communications track. And part of it is, do you know how difficult it is to actually how difficult it would be to make contact with something, mental contact with something that's different, which is part of what this is about. Um, yeah, I wanted to have, you know, all point of views, and of course the cynical point of view wins out in an almost, almost but not quite, uh, puppet masters type thing. Um, they're, they're, they're collecting humans for or whatever. But, uh, you know, a lot of this, part of me keeps thinking, the thing is we could get in a real horror situation without either side, without ill intent on either side, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm... When I wrote a book set in Africa in the 19th century, it's fascinating because most people have this vision of, oh, Europeans went in and they took native lands. And Well, first of all, no. Uh, the, the Zulus in, in the southern part of Africa had just arrived there, and they'd arrived there via conquering half the continent in fire and blood. I mean, the, the type... The type of massacres we associate with World War One, but without machine guns. There are hills made of human bones from that war. So they had just arrived there. And, you know, the, the, the white people came and started taking over. And you look at it. And you go, oh, well, it was the advanced weapons. Uh, no, it wasn't. Their weapons, yes, they were somewhat more advanced, but they weren't enough to give them that edge. The big difference is that both sides were working according to what they knew of the world. And what the Zulus knew of the world was thrive in our territory, go in, massacre everyone or everyone we can reach, and even if they have relatives, and I mean, make it a really bad, bloody massacre. And even if they have relatives, they'll stay away because we scared them so much. Except the first massacre and really atrocious massacre they did was publicized around the world in newspapers, which is something they couldn't even conceptualize. And they couldn't conceptualize an organization beyond the tribe. And they couldn't see this was going to get them declared evil throughout 
you know, the world and and their extermination would become a priority in the Maoris of the time. They were acting according to the way they had learned to keep peace in their area. And, of course, white people of the time were acting according to the way they saw the world. There was no real ill intent. I mean, they, they both wanted a piece of land. But other than that, there was no ill intent on either side. And that's all communication. There are things you can't communicate. And that was kind of what I was playing with. And and with the idea, you know, the idea that, that aliens would be very respectful of human life or come and try to save us from ourselves begs the question of why? You know, what is their vested interest behind it? And what are, you know, in, in the end, the... <laughs> Uh, to serve man thing, uh, even if that, you know, my linguist self goes, but it doesn't mean the same in their language, but you know what I mean. Well, I don't want to talk about it much more because I don't want to give too much away, but um, I really liked it. I, I read this book a while back and then um, actually, maybe I shouldn't say this in case someone finds a typo, but I proofread it for Bane and then I reread it and um, I liked it. I liked I liked the story the first time, and I really liked it even better the second. It really it um, I found more in it as I was going through it again, um, even to to like. So, um, but let me turn now to uh, Tony's story. The one thing I really yeah. like about Sarah's story, probably the most, is her um, is is her conception of the of of faster and light drive, because I really like the idea that they don't. Have- have any moving parts and that they work in a completely <laughs> different way than anybody suspected. Yeah, which we won't we won't say. But uh, well, they would. It's a different type of brain organization behind them. Yeah, it just seems to me that 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 seems more likely and more alien than um, than ones gears. that that are just have a bunch of gears in there. So. Right. Is not a steampunk faster than light travel mechanism by any means. Yeah, there's, there's a long tradition of uh, every writer comes up with their own facet of light drive. And that, that was certainly <laughs> unusual. If we could just get one to actually work, that would be great. That's uh, <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, I guess that hasn't cat, happened yet. <laughs> cat with buttered toast strapped to the back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a perpetual motion machine, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tony, let's uh let's talk about your story. Um tell me the title so I don't pronounce it the last word wrong, real quick. No love in all of Dwingaloo. No love in all of Dwingaloo. And um this was one you wrote is this was this in Asimov's originally? Um Sarah's story was original. Uh, but I think it's the only original one in the in the book. Uh, yours and Hank's are reprints. Um, yeah, mine was in Asimov in 1995, so it's about yeah. 20 years old. Yeah, and I wrote well, it in 1994. In your story, I'm going to let you explain it. Um, but I, it's got a really cool little. Um, the aliens, you kind of have a, a little bit different take. They're not really altruistic or. Um, nefarious they're just they're just good businessmen and men is probably not right I don't really have gender i don't guess but um well they're actually that, mediocre business people <laughs> the idea what yeah. if the aliens come and 
Really, uh-huh. all they want to do is create a bank branch here, <laughs> you know, and that's that's their that's their purpose. Um, and the the kind of currency, then I started thinking about, well, what kind of currency would there be out there? You know, it's not going to be Federation credits or whatever the hell. You know, it's going to be something just as beyond us as as um, everything else. And so I, I had to come up with the currency, um, which I decided was going to be um, uh, the past and the future, and that you could – the basic idea, I think, if I can say it right, man, it's been a long time is that you can take out options on your own future to improve your present. Um, And if things turn out okay, then your options pay off. But if they don't, then you disappear. Um, Or something like, or no, you you can use your path to invest in a better, I don't know. Anyway, there's basically the the entire universal economy runs by time, um, by options on the future and, um, accrued options from the past that you haven't used. And so um, they've they've come basically with the idea of um, of making some bucks off of humanity who can't access their old money, Um, their old pieces of their past that they can't access, they can't get to, and they show, and and their value they add is that they can can break that open and give everybody a little money to invest, as it were. They can – let you use your past as a sort of savings bank to invest. That's what they say, at least. Um, and they happen to come at a time when Earth is in absolute chaos. Uh, wars and plagues and nano this and that. And, and, there's, and they they didn't accidentally come at that time. Right, yeah. So I think... I think we pretty much explained it. So it's it's like a multiverse kind of idea, you know, where um, every time anything happens, you know, something branches off when you make a decision and, you know, you're only using one of those branches. And so the other one you can use as, as a currency. And, and you say the you know, the past that you didn't use, those are like nickels and dimes, but your possible futures are where the real money's at. Um, right. And I also really like the aliens in here. They're very alien aliens and uh, i can explain it or you can if you want because i think um i think we should we should talk about them they're they're a lot of fun yeah well the way that they communicate in the story is um is that they use basically they pull images uh out of your brain and use them of people you knew people that um that you cared about possibly family um old friends old acquaintances and they just string them together um basically using the the words that those people said um and you see them flash they're like little screens that kind of hover in front of you and you see those people flashing within them like amoeba kind of and they they talk to you and they use clichés a lot because people often speaking so they string together a lot of clichés that sort of make sense so um and it freaks some people out and drives them insane but the main character has had a very sort of – his family's gone, and he hasn't really fallen in love or anything. So he's got really nobody that they can freak him out with. So he's really able to communicate with them pretty well. Yeah, well, and I don't know – maybe we shouldn't say any more about it then. Um, but uh, the kind of this thing hangs on a – the aliens, talking about how they wouldn't have our customs, they are very open with bribing people with things. 
and uh, they bribe our main character with um, uh, a rather uh, generous uh, amount of their currency, which is futures. And uh, I guess maybe I'll leave it there. I don't want to give too much away. That's the that's the trick about talking about these things. You can't talk about them too much. But the choice in the story is 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 does he take this bribe of a of a future that will make him happy or um, right. but will create some other things or does he not? Which is right. you know kind of you know that's the way we all are at every moment. But he's more sure of it because he can feel and see and exist in that future. Um, right. He gets a, a vision of it um, because these little—I uh, mean—they have actual currency, little coins, and you touch the coin and you see the future it involves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So does he take that and live with the good and the bad of that, or not? Yeah. So I won't say any more. But I, I will—I will say that Tully's uh, concepts are probably the most original of any story in the book. Mm-hmm. The thing, the fun thing I had about my aliens also was that I, I kind of envisioned them as being um, fingers on a hand, and you only see the fingerprints um, in our reality because they have, you know, they're extra dimensional. And the main thing is something you can't see. So they're kind of interconnected to the big hand that you never see. Yeah, there's an, when he first describes them, there's a neat moment. One appears to him in this corridor, and from on front you know looking at it face on you see like you said they're like a little hovering screen but when you stand right beside it and look at them you know i don't know if you don't see anything or you see a really thin you know like a piece of paper and then if you go around to the back there's nothing there you know you can't see them and you can even walk through them and then turn around and you can see them so it's a really neat alien um yeah that's interesting fingerprints on a hand where they really exist more than what we're seeing, so that's cool. You should have put that in there, maybe. Um, now it's exclusive content for people who listen to the Bane Free Radio Hour. Uh, I think I've used that in another story. But... Oh, okay, there you go. So you should read the complete works of Tony Daniel and find that to win a fabulous uh, prize. Well, you can find a lot of them in my book, The Robot's Twilight Companion, my short story collection. Yeah. Is that on Bane eBooks or no? Mm, yeah, it is. Yeah, there you, there go. you go. All right, All right. it's the electric story. Shiv, now I want to talk about Hank's story. No shoulder to cry on. It's a great little. Um, it's a lot of fun little uh, classic twist ending story, um, and uh, it kind of addresses this notion of um, obviously, if aliens developed interstellar travel, they would be these peaceful, angelic. Uh, beings who would come to bring utopia to earth and uh this is uh written even longer ago than tony's story if you guys can believe that this was i think hank you said 68 this was printed in analog which means which means that this was bought by john w campbell so i don't know you probably don't have much of a story outside of an acceptance letter but that's pretty cool man to say that you sold the story to campbell so. acceptance letter i just just got a check <laughs> I learned later that Campbell did that. If he got a letter, usually he wanted to rewrite or he was rejecting the story and wanted to tell you uh, how you should have done it. Uh, but if he bought the story, he just sent a check. Well, but, you know, still, that's contact with John Campbell. <laughs> so 
because I, I did realize analog was paying five cents a word back then for short stories. Only three cents a word for longer stories. So I, I was surprised to get a $150 check, which was serious money back in 68. But uh, anyway, uh, the, the story, I, I owe a debt to Highline because I had read a few years earlier there was a Playboy, a two-issue Playboy interview. The, uh, instead of an interview with somebody, they had a panel discussion spread over two issues of the magazine which uh, the leading writers of the time were were participating. And, and one of Highline's comments was, well, some of the aliens land and they start blowing up our cities and, and killing our people, and and, uh, and then what? And I was thinking, thinking of that when I was try, trying to write stories back in the summer of 67, that... And I didn't have them arriving to blow up our cities, but I, I thought of a twist. If the aliens aren't all that peaceful, and how can I do a story where they're not peaceful without uh, them invading? And, and it went from there. I better shut up before I give something away. Yeah, uh, uh, thank, thank you, Mr. Highline, for that uh, nudging me in that direction. I kind of yeah, think I'll of it as, uh, as, as the twist being, it's not a cookbook. <laughs> Exactly, it's not a good book. I just realized I missed the great opportunity with what Hank was saying about how someone inspired him. Well, Heinlein, I once heard this panel at the con where Dave Drake posited that aliens would come over for our kazoo. For what now? Kazoo. Uh, and everyone was telling him, no, we don't give it to them. And he was like, give it to them. Give it all to them. I was so highly amused by this. Of course, when I was asked to do a first context, I had forgotten. But I wish I had now because, you know, just the thought. Maybe if there's a worse contact, too, you could do that. So yeah, if, if you want, so everyone, willing, if you want I could to see, do a first contact too. There, yeah. So if you want to see, a lot Sarah's, of other stories I could use. Some of the same writers. Yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, if you want to see several Sarah's, clever uh, new possibilities. What's that, Hank? Uh, I said there were several Clifford. Uh, I was I was juggling several different Clifford Cybex stories. Yeah, I wanted to say, I don't know if there's much to talk about here, but I wanted to say, I, and Sarah's mentioned him twice, I love Simak, and I feel like uh, he is sort of, I, I don't know, I don't want to say being forgotten, but you don't see his name on the list of the greats as much as maybe you once did, and so I'll just say thanks uh, for to Hank for putting his stuff out there uh, again. Um because yeah, he's one of my favorite writers from that era, and you just you know and Frederick Brown too. Although I think Brown's probably more remembered today than Simak is. So I don't know. That's just a comment, I guess. If I could put in a plug for another publisher, uh, a publisher currently is bringing, uh, which I can't remember the name of, but you can find it on Amazon. Uh, is currently bringing out all of Clifford D. Simak's short fiction in a series of paperbacks and eBooks. And oh, the last wow. one has the story that Simak sold to Harlow Ellison uh, ages and ages ago for uh, The Last Dangerous Vision. 
which uh, has, of course, never been published until now. Oh, wow. So it's a new story, then, or uh, unpublished story. Well, I think that just about covers it. You, anyone have any uh, final thoughts on uh, First Contact and Worst Contact? Um, I was thinking about if I, if Hank does do a sequel anthology, we could call it Serving Man. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Hank, did you did you think about putting that Damon Knight's that, To Serve Man? I thought about using it, but it's been, it's been so frequently Everywhere. printed. Yeah. And yeah. it turned into a Twilight Zone episode, the original Twilight Zone. Right, yes. With um, Jaws from the Bond movies playing the alien, right? But uh, maybe I would, uh, uh, if there's a second one, maybe I'll, I'll figure, okay, I'll put it in this time. Well, it's I a super cool all. collection. Um, it, it is. It's I, I, You know, Hank, I've, I've read all these because we've talked about them on the podcast that you've done recently and i like them all but this one this was cool i really like this one i think uh there's my official plug for it there we go so we uh have talked about aliens and first contact and worst contact that is the title of the book it is available now in paperback and ebooks uh i'll just say thanks to everybody for uh for being here and talking about it today sarah hoyt uh, Tony Daniel and Hank Davis. Yeah. By the way, it has a great Steve Hickman color. When I saw the cover, I, I figured uh, the caption should be "Walk twenty paces, then turn and fire." <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Steve Hickman is a uh, is legendary SF artist as well, who did the cover. It's great. He, he's yeah. got a terrific yeah. alias uh, and a terrific redhead too. <laughs> and Hank <laughs> likes redhead. Or, no, is Emma Peel a redhead? I don't know. Yes, uh, well, she's probably a redhead now. Oh, okay. But no, she has, all, she has Auburn hair. Uh, <laughs> Auburn. I've had arguments with some people about whether Auburn ha- hair is real redhead. Oh, well. <laughs> That's a top, We'll do a whole podcast on that sometime. <laughs> thank you, David. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Hank. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 24 Once upon a night we'll wake to the carnival of life. Steve crooned to the blaring music his feet propped up on the flying bridge and just enjoying the ride. It's hard to light a candle, easy to curse the dark instead. Seafit always seemed to find the big ones, and this time Captain George was being cagey. He just said, You're gonna need all your clearance teams. Steve, after some thought, had centralized the clearance teams on the toy. It just made sense. 
Captain Blair had picked up a former army cook who was comfortable enough to do clearance on small boats. But right now, hard clearance was still relegated to Faith, Fontana, and himself. And that way, they all had their throw weight concentrated. He kept his voice low. Singing wasn't one of his gifts. But he could hear Faith caroling along in a high, perfect soprano. And even a deeper and not bad tenor from Sergeant Fontana. They were busy prepping gear on the aft deck. If the rolls bothered them, it wasn't apparent. He heard Faith laugh about something and wondered, mildly, if putting her alongside the older and presumably heterosexual SF sergeant was a good idea. He wasn't a jealous, angry father type by any stretch and trusted his girls to make reasonably intelligent decisions. But Faith was still a bit young to make mature and intelligent decisions regarding romance, and face it, both his daughters were hotties. The main issue he had wasn't if something happened. He knew Faith generally knew the guidelines on that sort of thing. They'd had discussions on the subject. And in Fontana's position, the temptation had to be fairly high. The real issue was when, not if, something went wrong, and dealing with the aftermath— Faith was both passionate and, at this point, about as deadly as they came. It didn't for now appear to be a real issue, but it was just another nagging problem at the back of his mind. Like the Coasties, the headquarters hadn't gotten back to them at the three-day limit. The sub was still out there. It even maintained the same general position relative to his boat. The ESM mast was scooting along the surface, five clicks or so, port, forward just in case he got a call, he guessed. He'd put the Coasties on the large, since they had some people who could figure out the systems, and pointed out that they didn't really have the fuel to use it, then showed them the flotilla's usage. The Coasties were... coasting. They were being useful, helping out on the Victoria, working on boats, but until they got some orders, they couldn't really do much. They'd gotten two more boats up and doing rescue clearance, Blair was over on the changing times now, and Sophia had taken over the worthy endeavor, taking most of his crew with her. And they'd found a captain with an actual ticket and everything. All ocean, all tonnage, Geraldine Miguel, as a survivor on the 72-foot N2 deep. After taking a little break in harbor and getting her boat cleaned up, the tough 40-something captain had immediately headed back out to sea. And on her first day with a crew drawn from the women and the sick, lame, and lazy, had cleared ten life rafts and rescued six survivors. She'd do. He paused in his ruminations and picked up his binoculars, peering into the distance. The toy was a yacht, not a sport fisher, so it didn't have a tuna tower, which slightly limited the distance at which anything could be spotted. That depended upon the conditions, of course, but in general... Height equaled how far you could see at sea. That also meant that up on the flybridge, he could see farther than from the helm, which meant he was the first to spot the target. By the same token as having a higher spot to look from, being higher above the water meant that you were more visible, and this boat was visible from too far away. Then the music cut off. Captain Wolf, the helmsman called over the radio. I think I've spotted it on radar. His new helmsman, Gustav Fleischmann, had had some experience with small fishing boats. 
Graduating to the toy was an adjustment, and he was still unsure about all of the readouts. But he could and would drive a boat, and he seemed fairly reliable. Sure of himself? Not so much. Then again, Steve wasn't so sure of him, and generally took the boat for close maneuvers. Roger, Steve said. I've got it on visual. He wanted to curse. The boat could be a gold mine or a bust, but it was even larger than the large. Much larger, as he finally spotted Cheryl's 35-foot Bertram alongside. It looked like, well, a toy boat. In fact, the boat was much, much larger than he'd realized. It wasn't a boat. It was a small cruise ship? Mega yacht? He wasn't sure. He flipped channels for the flotilla frequency. See fit, toy, over. See fit, over, Cheryl answered back immediately. Fit, you sure know how to pick them. You like? We get part of the swag, right? If you've got it, we'll continue. Oh no, Steve said. This is an all-hands evolution. All boats relay, proceed location of sea fit for all-hands clearance. He paused for a moment, then keyed the radio again. Fit? Is that thing listing? Yeah, Cheryl replied. And you gotta see why. Bloody buggers. The mega yacht was massive, as long as the cutter, with some of the same lines, but prettier. It was anything but utilitarian, and it was, indeed, listing. On the starboard side of the yacht was a boarding and support center that was basically a door in the hull of the boat that dropped down to waterline. There was also a boarding ladder down from the promenade deck, which was above the height of the toy's flying bridge. The reason for the list was immediately apparent. There was a heavy hawser pointed straight down from the boarding area for support boats. Attached to it, as was apparent from looking down through the crystal clear water, was a sport fisher, probably as big as Cheryl's Bertram or a tad bigger. About 60 feet down, bobbing up and down from the swells, underwater. I can't believe this thing hasn't capsized, Cheryl said over the loudspeaker. The yacht also had a contingent of zombies, but they were sort of background to the big fishing boat attached to the much bigger ship. Well, that there's a puzzler, Fontana said, looking over the side of the toy. He spit in the water. It's so clear I sort of thought it would keep dropping. You don't realize how clear till you see something like that, Steve said. And them, Faith said, pointing to the circling sharks. Okay. Here's the puzzler, Steve said. The way the zombies are now, they're easy mate. They were lined up on promenade deck, their arms waving and reaching for the nearby boat. There was a waist-high railing, but there was plenty of room above it for a shot. Of course, there was a steel bulkhead behind them, which meant that any round was going to bounce, at least any that went through. Bouncers, Fontana said. Move back to the aft deck, Steve said pointing, but not looking. He was still considering the sunken boat. The problem being that someone is going to have to go down there and release that thing. If you try to cut the hawser, you don't want to get close enough to cut the hawser. It'll snap back like a 60-foot tie pan and twice as deadly. That means raising it or releasing it? Raising it? No. 
However, there is, unless I'm mistaken, a quick release on it, so hook up a line, pull, and it goes into Davy Jones's locker. Makes sense, Fontana said. Except for the being 60 feet down and we don't have scuba gear. That is not an issue, Steve said. I'm an expert freediver. And then there's them, Faith said, pointing to the sharks again. You know, the sharks, the man-eating sharks, the man-eating probably been surviving on zombies that fell off sharks. Right, those, Steve said. About those. You sure about this? Cheryl asked. Some people tended to call him Captain Gilligan for his vague resemblance to Alan Hale Jr. He had the same blue eyes, thinning blonde hair. As he was getting his beer gut back, the resemblance was increasing. His devotion to his sea fit was almost dog-like. He'd already lost three crewmen who couldn't take the constant pounding of being on a 35-foot sport fisher in deep ocean, day in and day out. 35-foot sport fishers were not designed for long endurance at sea operations. Captain Gilligan didn't seem to care. You'd pry him out with a crowbar. If they don't leave, Steve said, sitting on the bulwark of the aft deck of the fit, wearing swim fins and goggles. No. The sharks were still circling below, but with luck, that was going to change soon. There was another shot from the aft of the boat, and Steve vaguely heard the ricochet go by overhead. There was a flush deck at the rear of the yacht, which had the infecteds right at waterline. Whether they dropped in the water or not, the blood from them should attract the sharks. You'd better not shoot my boat, Cheryl said. There was a splash in the distance, and first one of the larger sharks, then the entire group, headed aft. Unlikely, Steve said. Angles are wrong. Of course, they were probably going to be putting holes in the yacht, but he figured it could probably take it. The boarding support area was halfway underwater, and the yacht hadn't sunk. He took a deep breath and slid quietly over the side. He porpoised down into the depths, spinning in a 360 to keep an eye around. In his left hand, he had a light line with a spring clip on one end. The other hovered over his H&K. While there had been snorkels, swim fins, and masks aplenty among the boats, not one single spear gun had been found. Steve was hoping, really hard, that he wasn't going to have to test if you could fire an H&K USP-45. With octagonal barrel and Austrian engineering, 60 feet underwater. He hadn't had much of a chance to do breath hold diving in a while. Most of the times they stopped, there were sharks around the boat and zombies to kill people to save. Even Jew Bay was a no-go zone. In fact, he hadn't had a lot of time for anything but the program in a while. But while he'd grown up on a station, it was close to the coast, and he'd grown up swimming and freediving. This was home territory, including the sharks, which in Australia were just one of those things like box jellies, spiders, and snakes you had to put up with. When he reached the hawser, he put his right hand on it and followed it down to the latch point. The hawser wasn't tied to the fishing boat. It was connected to a quick-release latch, which was, in turn, connected to an apparently massively strong davit. Steve felt like he was out of air, but knew it was just CO2 buildup, so he let out some air as he carefully connected the clip to the quick-release.
That was as much as he could handle on one breath, so he started back up. He spun around, again looking for potential threats, but the sharks were busy feasting at the aft of the boat. His motions were smooth and regular, just another healthy, happy fish in the water, nothing to attract them. His heart beat faster as a massive hammerhead came coasting down the length of the megayacht. It seemed in no hurry to get to the feeding frenzy aft. On the other hand, it didn't turn towards Steve. He surfaced and swam, splash-free, to the dive platform on the rear of the Seafit and pulled himself completely out of the water, sprawling out on the platform. You okay? Cheryl called from the tuna tower. He was holding a rifle in his hands. Fine. Steve said. Is that for zombies or sharks? Yes. Steve breathed deeply and waved with two fingers for Cheryl to back the boat closer to the megayacht. The less lateral distance he had to cross, the better. This time, he slipped off the dive platform face down to get a better head start. He spun in place and then tried not to panic as the massive hammer came coasting towards him. It had apparently decided that the other boat was probably going to serve up tasty zombies as well. Steve decided to just keep heading down. Hammerheads were known to attack humans, and this one was obviously accustomed to feeding on infecteds. But they were also fairly smart for sharks, and also tended to focus on distressed fish, birds, and mammals. Steve's movements were regular and steady. It should ignore him. Should. He kept an eye on it as he headed down the hawser to the line. The medium-weight nylon was more or less negatively buoyant and hadn't gotten far from the hawser. Steve got a hold of one end and moved away from the hawser. As soon as he was clear, he sped up, swimming away from the boat and the quick release as fast as possible. The line wrapped around his left hand. He felt the shock of the line going taut and looked back. The quick release had surrendered finally, and the boat shot into the depths as the hawser snapped upwards, pulling Steve along with it, which had been part of the plan. Unfortunately, the sharp movements excited the hammerhead, which headed for the only reasonable source of protein in view, Steve. The shark came in at lightning speed, but Steve had had a master's course in drawing and firing fast at this point. He fended the charging hammerhead away by placing the barrel of the H&K against its port hammer and pressing the trigger as it rolled to take a bite of tasty human. The gun did not explode, and the hammerhead did not take well to being shot in the head by a polymer-capped expanding 45 caliber ACP. It spasmed and dashed away in a corkscrew, its tail lashing furiously. Unfortunately, It was now a distressed fish, bird, or mammal. Sharks sense such movements and are attracted to them. And while there were tasty zombies at the aft of the boat, there were also a lot of sharks. So some of the ones on the edge of the pack banked away and headed towards the new source of potential protein. Which meant right at Steve. He wasn't sticking around to watch or anything, but the sharks were coming in from near the surface, the hammerhead was tracking down and forward on the megayacht, and that meant that the shark's path led them right to Steve, who they passed without note. He was still being calm and regular in his movements, and they didn't see him as easy prey. Five, six, nine sharks darted right past him in pursuit of the massive hammer, 
as he calmly made his way to the surface. I thought you were a goner there, Cheryl called. They were too deep to shoot. If you'd shot one of them, I would have been a goner, Steve muttered. If one of the charging sharks had been shot as well, all the rest would have closed in, with Steve as tasty snack in the middle. What? Cheryl asked, starting to climb down. Easy peasy, Steve said, decocking the H&K and taking a series of deep breaths. No worries, mate. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bang Consulting Editor David F. Sherrod for the interview. To Christopher Rocchio. Thanks, Christopher. No problem, Tony. Thanks for having me. And we'll be you'll probably be hearing him on the podcast more frequently. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a ride on the thousand tiny jets from ant rocket backpacks as they take to the stars and bring real civilization to the galaxy, plus a gigantic mound of the quantum ghosts of all the science fiction short stories that might have been written, to Hank Davis, who would like nothing better than to spend eternity reading those stories, to David F. Sherryrod and Sarah Hoyt, and look for a story collection Worst Contacts at booksellers everywhere. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Oh, oh, oh.